Good afternoon, everybody. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. My name is Alina Polyakova. I'm the Deputy Director of the Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. And it's my pleasure to see all of you here today. It's really a packed room, uh, which I think uh, shows there's a lot of hunger and desire from the audience here in Washington, D.C. to know more about these issues of media, communications, and culture when it comes to the Russian Federation today. So I'd like to welcome you on behalf of the Atlantic Council to our event, The Changing Face of Kremlin Propaganda. We know that the Kremlin uses the information as a tool of nonlinear, non unconventional hybrid warfare, whatever term you wish to use. The purpose of this event today is to hear from the practitioners, the journalists themselves, who, faced, who face uh, Kremlin-funded media propaganda on a daily basis, and who must still function as independent voices in that media space. There have been many discussions and conferences on this issue in the past. One just recently uh, that the Atlantic Council co-sponsored at the George Washington University. And it seems that for approximately two years since the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, we've been having very similar conversations. So this is our attempt to take that discussion one step further, to really focus on the insider's view from the journalists today on the changing tactics of Putin's propaganda and strategies uh, for the year to come. I'd like to also thank our partners who helped us put together this event, um, IREX and the Free Russia Foundation. And without further ado, I'd like to just quickly uh, welcome Sheila Scott from IREX. She's the project director, the Center for Collaborative Technology at IREX, to say a few words about uh, the organization. Sheila? Thank you, Alina, and welcome everyone. We, IREX is very pleased to be a co-sponsor of this event today. We have worked with the former Soviet Union since 1968, beginning with educational exchanges and up into today, helping to build a vibrant information society in the former Soviet sphere and indeed recently globally. IREX works not just to support a free and independent media, such as our colleagues here who will be speaking soon on the, today's panel, but also we work with media consumers is particularly important in the face of the type and the intensity of the Kremlin-backed propaganda today for citizens to be able to discern truthful from non-truthful news and other information. And we've developed particular training methodologies to work with citizens, as well as continuing our work with professional journalists and citizen bloggers. I'd like to invite now uh, Natalia Arnaud, my colleague from the Free Russia Foundation. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Natalia Arnaud, uh, president of the Free Russia Foundation, established uh, a year and a half ago uh, to assist uh, political opposition and civil society in Russia and to coordinate uh, pro-democracy Russians abroad. Um, many of us, like me, like Karina, like Masha, Masha and many others, we were forced to prefer leaving Russia and moving to the US. For many of us, it's very important to continue our fight for a free and democratic Russia. For me, this fight is very personal uh, because I want my country back. And the subject we are discussing today is really very important. The disinformation war that the Kremlin has unleashed so aggressively made the West finally realize that today's Putin's Russia is not just an internal problem of Russian political opposition or the problem of countries neighboring Russia like Ukraine, but it's actually a global threat. 
propaganda is not only unpleasant, it actually very often kills people. So let me uh, thank you for this event today. Uh, my special thanks for my partners, for IREX for being the first one to support this idea of such a discussion, to Atlantic Council for being our uh, partner for so many events. Uh, together we presented uh, the report Putin War last year, and in March we did it uh, about Putin's hitman, Ramzan Kadyrov, who is also president of Chechnya. And we had the panel uh, featuring Marina Litvinenko recently. We are now working on the new event in June on Russian parliamentary elections, so hope to see you again. Um, and uh, let me introduce my sister in arms, Karina Arlova, uh, a very uh, talented uh, journalist from Echo of Moscow, and she will uh, moderate uh, today's event, and she will uh, introduce our uh, outstanding panelists. I'm sorry, Vasily, it's gender inequality here today. Please <laughs> welcome to the stage. Good afternoon. I'm Karina Arlova. I am an Echo of Moscow radio station correspondent to DC, and I'll be moderating this panel today. And I would like to introduce our speakers just right away. So Masha Gessen, a journalist and a Carnegie Millennial Fellow. Masha is the author of seven books, including World, uh, Words Will Break Seven, The Passion of Pussy Riot, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, which was the, an international bestseller, and The Brothers, The Road uh, um, to an American Tragedy about the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, Masha Gessen is also a frequent contributor to various publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, where she writes on Putin's Russia. Previously, she worked as the head of um, the U.S. Uh, News and World Reports Moscow Bureau and as the editor at several Russian magazines. Please welcome. And we also have an... Yes, please. Uh, Vasily Gadov, who is a visiting fellow at the University of Southern California Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, where he focuses on Russian media. He is working on a book uh, ten tentatively titled Life Censored on the reemergence of totalitarian censorship of the Russian media. Prior to becoming a visiting fellow, he worked in the media, serving as an executive and strategist for several Russian media companies, including the RAN TV network, Media3, and RIA Novosti. Please welcome Vasily. Um, we also have Natalka Pisne, special reporter and the U.S. Bureau Chief for the Ukrainian tele television service OnePlus One Media Group. She has over 17 years of extensive international journalism experience, reporting for several TV stations and newspapers from Ukraine, the U.K., the States, France, Russia, Germany, Italy, and the Caucasus. Um, Natalka has also reported from the front lines of the ongoing conflict with the pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine. Please welcome. And we also have uh, Daria Diegutz. She's a foreign correspondent for TV channel Ukraine, where she work, uh, works in Washington, D.C. and Brussels, covering international news, including U.S.-Ukraine-European uh, Union-Ukraine relations. Prior to joining TV channel Ukraine, Daria worked as a news anchor for business, a financial and economic TV station. A correspondent in Ukraine for several international media outlets, including Press TV and an editor at TV channel Ukraine. Please welcome. Hi. Oh, okay. It's working. Perfect. So I just want to let you know that despite the tradi traditional way uh, such panels go in the Atlantic Council, there will be no prepared speeches of our guests. And we will start a discussion right away. I, I will start it. And the last 30 minutes, 
Uh, it will be at 1.30 p.m. Uh, we um, will have the Q&A part. So, so, my first question is very briefly uh, to everyone who asks, uh, what challenges do you face, if any, coming from Russian propaganda today? Let's start. I mean, just briefly, you know. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five. Well, um, should we just go down this way? Um, I mean, I'm not actually a working Russian journalist anymore. That's not voluntary. It's just there's no place for me to write for in Russia uh, that is both uh, free and challenging and rewarding. Um, that's Those outlets no longer exist. So that's probably the biggest challenge is that I've basically had um, for the last uh, 20 odd years, I was a journalist in both countries, writing in English for the American press and in Russian for the Russian press, and I've had to stop writing in Russian altogether uh, because it's not viable. That's, uh, that's uh, fortunately, I have a backup career, but that's a pretty big challenge. Well, for me, the, the biggest challenge is uh, what is happening in terms of destruction of profession, of uh, occupation of journalists at all, as such in Russia. And uh, uh, although, although there are still quite a number of uh, organizations that continue to work as, well, independent, uh, even independent and professional um, news outlets, uh, the, the general perception of journalism and the general perception of uh, media communications in Russia has completely shifted. Uh, and, uh, well, I think the, the biggest challenge we, we face and will face is how to rebuild it at, the, at, at, at one moment that would inevitably come. Thank you. Michalka. Uh, first of all, I would like to emphasize that I'm a Ukrainian journalist, so I'm working for Ukrainian media. Uh, and uh, I'm let's say from the other side of barricade because I am a person uh, against whose country Russia propaganda is actually working. Um, we had a bureau in Moscow uh, which was closed a year ago and my colleague Margarita Sitnik, she was accused that she, is a par uh, she, she started a terroristic organization uh, in Moscow and she was wanted by FSB and uh, Happily, at that moment, she, she was at vacations in China, and she came directly to Kiev, and she is not allowed to, to go to Russia anymore. Even more, uh, I was arrested in Abkhazia uh, one and a half year, years ago, and um, I'm also can, uh, not allowed to go to Russia, at least for three years, by my understanding. Um. Hi, dear all. Uh, so as Ukrainian journalist, I also can probably talk more about how the Russian propaganda uh, influences my country. And probably since the very beginning of the Revolution of Dignity, we've seen this you know, tendency in all the Russian news, uh, when all the news segments started with the covering uh, news from Ukraine, and it was like half of the evening news segment of the Russian news on the key Russian channels, and it was absolutely dedicated and devoted to the problems in Ukraine, and that was a glut of twisted information that was uh, fake, fake reports, and this is actually something that we see even now, even though some of the 
Russian TV channels, so they were taken from the panel and not all the people have the access to the Russian channels in Ukraine, but still uh, they can be watched using the satellites. And unfortunately, uh, people still watch this news and they are still, lots of them, especially in the eastern parts of Ukraine, uh, the most important parts of Ukraine nowadays, they still receive information and news from the Russian TV channels. So thank you. Uh, so from my part, listen, as I'm a journalist too, a Russian journalist, uh, the same challenge I face is that, um, but thank God I have a place where I, I can work. It's Echo of Moscow, <coughs> and I'm really happy to work there. Um, but yes, so I had to leave Russia uh, because I received several death threats from um, Kaderos people, basically. So they call themselves uh, Muslim radicals, but uh, they protected Ramzan Kaderov, and the Russian police did not protect me. So yeah, uh, but still, I am I'm uh, happy to keep going, to keep working, uh, and I should say that my uh, blogs uh, I mostly write on Echo's website because it's more you know important and more influential. They became even more influential, and even more people read it. So I, I guess my goal is uh, getting better. So. Um, like my, my first question, um, Western leaders are now becoming aware of Russian and Chinese, by the way, propaganda. For example, U.S. Senators Rob Portman and Chris Murphy, right here on this stage, less than two months ago, uh, introduced the Counter and Information Warfare Act of 2016, a bill that would create a new coordinating body, uh, the Center for Information Analysis and Response. The two senators talked here a lot about the danger that comes from Russian and uh, Russian and Russians and Chinese in the informational field of hybrid war, as it's called. Uh, so I want to talk about the real danger and influence coming from Russian foreign propaganda media outlets. Uh, I mean, of course, primarily RT and Sputnik uh, here in the States. Last week, uh, I wrote myself a piece uh, on this topic. It's published, sorry for a little promoting myself. It's published in the American, actually I'm promoting the American Interest uh, magazine. And uh, so, yeah, and I say there that RT is actually no big deal here in the States. Uh, yes, they receive uh, $450 million annually from the federal budget for their DC bureau only. But as a Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, once said, for every stolen ruble, there are five being screwed up in Russia. So probably this is exactly that could explain the real viewership of RT. And I am now talking about a recent brilliant story at the Daily Beast that cited a leaked report showing that the average daily viewership of RT programs in the States does not even exceed um, 30,000 people, the apparent threshold for being ranked by Nielsen. This report became possible thanks to Vasily Gadov, as far as I understand, who used to work for now not existing RIA Novosti, the biggest Russian news agency that was transformed into Russia Today propaganda media holding two months before the Crimea annexation. So Vasily, um, is RT worth countering uh, at all? So is there any point to counter RT propaganda since they don't even like can be ranked by Nielsen? Uh, this, is a, this is a good question because I mean, we, 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 we still have no answer, uh, neither from uh, RT itself nor from, uh, well, researchers who may prove or disprove uh, this, this information. Actually, uh, you're, you're not right about, about viewership uh, for RT broadcasts 
looks like they have an actual viewership of about 30,000 people, just around this which figure. Is much. Which is not much, which is, which is just uh, on the edge of sensibility of Nielsen, uh, Nielsen system for cable channels. But the problem is that they don't actually need more because they work uh, uh, by creating an echo chamber and by, by the fact that people notice their, uh, their work and their sort of their, their, their uh, insertions, their kind of brosse, I don't know how to say it in English. Uh, and disruptions. Disruptions. And, and, and they're being discussed and they're being kind of promoted. Um, I would not discount the fact that they have quite a large audience in YouTube. It's much bigger than, than, than they have in broadcast. Uh, but still, uh, it's, it's not comparable to any uh, American uh, sort of major news channel. And so, I, yeah. so and, and well, then the second question, how much it's worth? Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely not worth uh, $2 billion that Russia has spent uh, on this uh, in the last 10 years. Can, I, can we just backtrack a little bit? Because I think that the question is really, um, you know, is this idea of countering misinformation viable on its own? And I don't think it is. I don't, you know, um, I think there's there's this very strange premise that you can somehow a reach to the, uh, out to the people who are consuming this and b show them the facts. And, they, uh, and that will change their minds. Uh, none of which has any basis in fact, or you know, even in sort of we, what we instinctively understand about human nature. Uh, but I also want to point out that Russian propaganda works not by spreading misinformation, right? That's not the point. Uh, misinformation is sort of the, 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 the cacophonous blanket in which a worldview is packaged, but um, What's really being promoted by the entire uh, by, by the, the entire machinery, both inside and outside the country, is a worldview, and the worldview is very very particular. It's a worldview that you know the whole world is rotten, nobody can be trusted, everything is for sale, elections everywhere are rigged, uh, uh, every country is corrupt. That's sort of what's being promoted. Countering that by saying, no, 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 you have that figure you know, wrong there, or even, uh, as sometimes happens when, when, uh, you know, when, when we get, we here in the West broadly, get very lucky when the Lisa story in, in Berlin gets exposed, when, uh, when Russian propaganda uh, broadcasts this, these reports and this uh, girl who was supposedly uh, abused in Germany, which turned out to be entirely faked. So what? You know, uh, that story sort of affirmed somebody's worldview, did not affirm somebody else's worldview. They were caught lying. That was, I'm sure that was very satisfying for the people who caught them lying. But I don't think that's the way to work with it. Uh, I, I just want mm -hmm. uh, to, to sort of to, to bridge the gap. There, 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 is, uh, there is general political propaganda, which Masha described very well. And this is a poisonous propaganda, which works against, for example, Ukraine. This, these are different things. Uh, and uh, as far as uh, general, this worldview delivery, uh, this crude and scorched understanding of uh, public sphere that Moscow uh, outlets uh, pretend to exist uh, and pretend to be true from their point of view, is probably is probably well known to to, to everyone who 
uh, who, who remember Soviet time. It was exactly the same. Well, very similar, I mean, then. But in case of uh, border countries, I mean, like Ukraine, like Baltic states, this is a, uh, is, this is a real aggressive military-style um, propaganda playbook, the same you exercise against the enemies during the war. I mean. I would just wanted to disagree a little bit with Masha. Uh, actually, she said that it's not misinformation. No, it's just disinformation because uh, I personally uh, dedicated like several weeks um, of my time to study uh, RT's methods of work, and there there is real disinformation. For example, they said they they issued this fake document uh, allegedly issued by Rand Corporation, a think tank, where. Uh, it was said that uh, Rent recommends to uh, Ukrainian fascist authorities to just, you know, create concentrations, concentration campers uh, in eastern Ukraine just to kill people. It was, and they they discussed it in their newscast, and it, it is a disinformation, and it was never, uh, you know, disavowed, never. That's no, what they let did. Me, no, let me just make this clear. I'm not saying that they're not spreading lies. They're spreading lies 24-7. I'm saying that's not the point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, do you have something to say on RT? Actually, I may probably add that by my perception, their main success. Uh, you mentioned these tremendous figures, how, Russian, uh, how much Russian government uh, does spend to support Russia today. And this is actually the key how we can address it because um, this information, of course, is the main goal. But this is not only uh, what is uh, Russia today is made of. So the other thing that then can um, hire very good specialists, good professionals. They can, for example, hire Larry King, and it could be uh, for some people who are always looking for alternative um, thirds, and this is probably also the nature of all the people. So looking for alternative views, uh, probably to question something, to look for uh, conspiracy theories. Having such people on Russia today, and also that man that uh, worked, I've forgotten, sorry, his name. Uh, it was a British TV show after he was uh, um, Fired, yes, he was picked up by Russia today. And that's why they are producing a lot of very good entertainment content, content and that's why they can sell their propaganda much better and for uh, probably more people around the world who stick to these programs and then they just don't switch to another channel watching TV news. And then that is how they actually uh, goes with this pro disinformation and propaganda. So, and until we spend more money to address it, it's almost, I guess, impossible to, okay. Uh, first of all, probably I need to, to, to emphasize on one point. Um, the influence of Russian propaganda is not that bad for Ukraine right now, and I can explain why, because not actually a lot of people are w watching this. Uh, the the like the main damage is um, 
which, which provides a Russian propaganda is probably for people who are living and staying in Donbass region because uh, they are really harmed by this. They don't have an, an access to Ukrainian media. They don't have an access to Ukrainian TV channels. Um, sometimes they don't have an access to internet. So the, the major thing is like the major threat and the major damage is uh, actually for people of Donbass. And if we compare the person who is living, for example, in London or someone who is living in Kiev. So uh, the main damage is actually um, goes to the person who is living in London and watching RT. Uh, if we're talking about money, um, when I was a college student, my professor always say, Metalka, if you don't know the, the roots, the reason, uh, follow the money. If we're talking about money, uh, I suspect it was the, the numbers provided by State Department. Uh, one. 0.4 billion dollars each year Russia is spending for propaganda machine. This is quite a lot. They are broadcasting for um, 600 million people all over the world. They are broadcasting, at, once again, this is according to the State Department. Uh, they are broadcasting in 30 different languages. So they, they have a huge resource. And? So what, I mean, uh, since we're discussing uh, the money now, mm -hmm. um, there is the interesting thing. Uh, Vasily, am I correct that the report that uh, once you had, the, the one you had, uh, about RT's real viewership was designed for high-profile Russian officials to, to be presented to them? Is mm, it true? Yes. So have they ever received it? I don't know. Okay, and what was the purpose of this well, effort? Well, let, 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 let put it bluntly. I mean, uh, well, there was, man, there was and there still is competition of Russian state agencies uh, for state budget because they, they can't, well, they actually cannot leave any, 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 any way without, without receiving state sponsorship, grants, uh, direct funding like, our, uh, like RT and so on. So, uh, Ria Novosti, where I work at this moment, was competing with RT for for the budget. So, um, for good for good purpose or for bad purpose, I mean, uh, uh, we we just decided to understand what is the deliverables on 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 RT spending, which was at the moment about 420 million dollars a year, and Ria Novosti, which was about 100 million dollars a year. So, uh, and we compared it to. Uh, other state uh, information organizations like Xinhua or um, uh, or um, uh, CCTV or uh, Al Jazeera, uh, and just discovered that efficiency. I mean, most of uh, of other national uh, organizations, I mean, they at least deliver uh, a significant reach, uh, a sort of viable presence uh, as a news organization. And for uh, RT, I mean, they they have changed. I mean, you should be you should be honest. I mean, RT since uh, since Ukrainian uh, sort of the peak of Ukrainian war had um, had done quite a lot to kind of wash a little bit their image, uh, adding more uh, sort of more soft, more um, documentary content to their main feed instead of like running as sort of. Day, minute after minute, uh, sort of news about Kiev. Uh, so uh, I, I, I still think the, the 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 money question is probably not the most important. The message question is important, 
and I mean, here I agree with Marshall completely. And I don't think that you should concentrate on rebutting uh, messages that come from Russia because you you will you will you will have on this play sort of on this lever of of uh, situation because you'll you you you'll have much better results if you just ignore them. Uh, on, on the situation with Ukraine, which, which is exposed to Russian language propaganda and Baltic states, which are exposed to Russian language propaganda, uh, there, there could be dif different and actually much more difficult um, uh, in institutions and instruments that, that have to be built. And I mean, I just want to say that um, a couple of years ago, uh, an Ukrainian scientist working for NYU uh, Leonid Pisachin has published a big paper on how the broadcast of Russian TV, transborder broadcast of Russian TV, affected the election results in Poltava, Sumy, and other parts where, where like a, along the border, I mean, you can have transborder mm -hmm. reception. And it's absolutely clear I mean, that, that, that the districts that were exposed to Russian broadcast uh, were, were voting for, uh, like, Yanukovych party, and as soon as, as the reception ended, they may have been voting for sort of other Ukrainian parties that were not uh, pro-Moscow or sort of. So it's very it's very clear that that the television is a uh, Russian television is a very powerful tool uh, when it comes to Russian-speaking communities, but. Uh, Otherwise, I don't think so. I, I just want to add something. I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I, I think the Ukrainian situation is really complicated because it's a truly bilingual country. But um, I've just spent a little bit of time in Estonia and particularly in Narva. And, uh, and I think, again, this, the, 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 the problem goes a lot deeper than just transborder transmission. And um, they're, they're exposed to this Russian language propaganda. Of course, they're exposed to Russian language propaganda, but it's bigger than that. There is a whole sort of population, in, especially in the border regions, that is still living in the Soviet Union. Oh, yeah. there's, uh, there, uh, there, uh, there's the rest of the country that is, has joined the European Union, that, uh, that, is having, you know, that has its own politics, that has its own civic life, and then there is a population that, is, uh, the, uh, that lives in the Soviet Union and is watching Russian TV. And just because Russian TV suddenly magically stops or there's something else to counter it, even in Russian, they're not going to stop living in the Soviet Union. Well, uh, if we're talking about it, uh, what should be done to just change it um, because every, everybody is talking about a possible threat or maybe an existing uh, threat uh, in these Baltic countries, in these Russian, Russian uh, regions, Russian speakers. Which country? I mean, we're talking about Baltic countries. Baltic countries. Mm -hmm. I suspect um, if there is any chance to, to invest money to the education of journalists, first of all, in every local country, because the thing is, we, um, a journalist, like a local journalist, Estonian, Latvian, Lithuanian, they sometimes can, can't resist to, to, to propaganda, first of all, because of the lack of education, journalistic education. Interesting. You know, I think that journal, uh, journalism education is always a good thing. I will always support it, but I don't think that's the way to counter Russian propaganda. I think. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the threat uh, that is posed to the Baltic states is an existential and primarily military threat, and it should be they should enjoy the military protection 
of Western, uh, of, of the West, the full military protection of the West. And that way, you know, the, uh, they can still have the population that's still living, that is living in the Soviet Union, but that population will not pose an existential threat to the rest of the country. Um, I think that really the only chance is to invest money in creating Russian-speaking TV channels, media, because I don't know the stats for uh, Baltic countries, but in Ukraine, uh, according to the last latest figures, around 80% of the people, they are still receiving news uh, from TV. And that's why we can talk a lot about um, uh, baking uh, bloggers, um, new types of media, and of course this is very important, but like in the long run, but now uh, we still face this situation with 80% of the people who watch TV, so they need something if they want to watch this, this news in Russian, uh, they do need to have the other source uh, of the information, uh, not the TV channel Russia, not the first Russian channels. And as I see it, it shouldn't be like just news channel, but it should be an, an entertainment channel as well. So the one that will have its own audience. And yeah, so let's create this TV channel. <laughs> Okay, just another spend of money, well, right? I can, I can only say what you shouldn't do. Okay. Yeah, but and I think I think you should not. Nothing. You should not create America today, for Baltic states. This this would be an existential mistake, because because without without a market which can support large TV channel, uh, and this should be large TV channel addressed to several million people living there, uh, you will be funded by sort of um, other country budget and other country interest, and therefore you won't be actual media. You would be a propaganda vehicle, and that's it. So uh, I don't think that that's, um, I mean, probably, uh, I don't think the, r the right thing for, for, for Baltic states was to sort of uh, expand bans on Russian broadcast in their countries because everything what is banned is becoming more attractive because it's hidden and I mean it's like the plot the, 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 yeah, the prohibited fruit and so so I don't think it's the correct thing what exactly should be done uh, I would rather re refrain because I'm not Baltic state specialist but I think also, I mean, I, I, I also, it's not my job to say what should be done. My job is to say what shouldn't be done. That's, that's you know, that's what they call journal, uh, that, that's what journalists do, uh, is they point out what's, what's wrong with what's happening. And I just want to, uh, I'm not sure why we're talking so much about Baltic states, but it is fascinating. And I was just there, so I'll just add a little bit. Um, I think that we need to understand the problem. The problem is not Russian television. Right? The problem is that these, uh, uh, these states have very large populations that have a completely different historical narrative, a completely different understanding of who they are and where they live than other citizens, uh, than the full citizens of, that, uh, of those countries. Right? They don't have a basic agreement about um, what happened in 1940. <coughs> they have uh, they, they don't have a basic agreement of why they're, uh, on why they're there, how they, how they came to be there. There's also a huge population that's uh, now, 25 years later, is very happy with the gray passports that they have, 
right? So the, uh, because the gray passports, the, the non-citizen passports, which allow them free travel in the European Union and free travel in Russia, right? It's like the ultimate travel document. Uh, in Estonia, they also get to vote in local elections, but not in national elections. And for most people, that's <coughs> fine. And, uh, uh, but that fine, right? That is a fine uh, uh, of, of, of sort of non-citizen consciousness, of a total absence of, of, uh, of, of any kind of identity that's rooted in the country where they live, uh, or even sort of a total absence of civic aspirations. You don't address that with television. I don't know how you address it, but certainly you know, not by spending lots of money that Estonia, uh, a country of 1.2 million people, doesn't have anyway. Uh, you know, sp spending money on Russian television, which it's doing, is not going to solve that problem. And has anybody something to say about what should be done, actually? Because that's a good question. I mean, really, because these two senators, well, they proposed to create this uh, coordinating body, like Center for Information Analysis and Response, and, oh, okay, another BBG, one, maybe. Yes. Oh, a second body. Yes. yes, so there's going to be like a bunch of experts who yeah. have never been to Russia, who has no idea what's going on there, and they will just sit there and say, and they will just, what some of the experts sitting here, they were, they were saying, well, we should be funding the message deliverers in Russia. Probably this woman just doesn't know that uh, Russia has um, this foreign agents uh, law that just prohibits. I mean, NAD is, uh, it's, is banned in Russia and uh, you cannot run uh, media if you own more than 20% of shares of that. So it's just out of question. And yet they propose it. So it's totally ineffective. But still, they try to do something. Maybe you have something to say about it. What should be done, actually? I'm told, I see it like in creating Yeah, you are for spending money. Yes. I know, that's Russian. But <laughs> in a proper way, and it could be like a channel Wait. that will broadcast for Ukraine, for Moldova, for Baltic countries. And um, it shouldn't be like uh, as a must created here or based here. It could be based uh, in any actually country, not of course in Russia, but in any Baltic state. And there it won't face any restrictions and it won't be taken from, from the air. And that's how it could probably work because um, personally, me, I don't see any other ways to counter propaganda than uh, answering the same th to the Russian pro propaganda with the same weaponry it used to uh, pull it. So, so the U.S. government has a, a resource of 1.4 billion dollars per year to resist uh, Russian propaganda in the equal way, like equal response? This is the other question. So we're going back to the thing that until we uh, spend enough money for this, um, it's very difficult to really com uh, compete with this uh, budget that Russia have for propaganda needs. Uh, actually, I have a question. Should we worry about uh, Russian communities in the States? Are they influenced by RT or Sputnik, or it's just out of question? I mean, is it mm, possible? From my, from my knowledge and point of view, they are not influenced by RT because uh, Russian communities in the United States watch, watch Russian, Russian television. Yeah, and they're much more influenced by Brighton Beach. Uh, so, uh, because I mean, this, the culture, the culture that, that is being promoted by Russian Russian television uh, currently is uh, the vision of America, uh, which, 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 which 
people from Brighton Beach have, I mean, with all the respect to them. Uh, and, 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 and on the other hand, uh, I, uh, I don't see uh, why there's, no, there's not, no danger, I mean, in terms of quantity of these people, because I mean, it's like six million people of Russian descent in America, of them about one million are like keeping both, both passports, Mm, about 500,000, I mean, are temporary visitors. No, don't, don't see the problem here. It's too small. I America is too big, unlike Israel. I, I do want to say one thing that I think should be done. And, uh, um, and also, this is an attempt, again, to, to, to reframe the discussion a little bit. I think that mentioning uh, journalism education is, is, is exactly right. I mean, uh, there is still a whole small, uh, but, uh, and beleaguered population of r journalists working in the Russian language space, right? Whether they're based in Russia or uh, or outside of Russia, and um, and they're working under siege. I mean, the conditions of working in journalism, and I'm not just talking about the sort of the physical danger that uh, that everyone has heard about, but the emotional, psychological danger of uh, being in this. Uh, in this false narrative, uh, in this crazy-making space, in this, uh, you know, just in this sort of soul-eviscerating space, and trying to do your job is really, really huge. And I think that what we could do is, uh, is create programs for Russian journalists or Russian language journalists to come out of the space that, where they're working to receive further training. I mean, they a lot of them lack professional skills, but they also lack a, a space where they can sort of air out their brains and, and, and souls. Air rate, yeah. I mean, like what? Air rate, like you, you, you yeah, feel, you feel, rate, yeah. you feel it with air. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, and um, you know, I don't think that that's a strategy for countering Russian misinformation. I think it's just the right thing to do. I agree with you. And so, um, since we more or less um, all agree on on the fact that RT is no big deal here at all. Uh, I would like to talk about Russian propaganda inside Russia and in Ukraine. Uh, so my questions are for Natalka and Daria. Has Russian propaganda in Ukraine has changed for the past two years since Maidan? Has it worsened? Or? Yes, of course. And even more, I would probably uh, say that, you know, we have... Okay, so the, the human's body could resist antibiotics, right? And you need something more powerful every time. If you use an anti um, antibiotic, the same uh, the same drug for every time, the same medicine. As far as Russian propaganda was uh, had a huge influence before revolution, so people become smarter. It's not about I will not uh, watch TV. It's about fact check, because uh, people now are starting to to check the information information they receive, and this is a good thing about. Uh, how um, the the ability of Ukrainians is uh, to to think to, to to digest the information is is growing. So the situation is not that bad. It was really bad two years ago. It was really bad during Maidan. It was really bad when uh, you know um, terrible Banderevtsi are killing people, eating them in the center of Kiev. It was terrible. Crucifying young uh, it, boys. Uh, it, it was terrible when um, Ukrainians crucified the kids in the, uh, in the middle of uh, city Slavyansk in, in eastern Ukraine, when uh, 
People had no idea what's actually going on. What is it, ATO? Is this anti-terroristic operation? Is this a war? Did someone announce the war? So at that time, Russian propaganda was really, had really big influence. But for now, uh, probably I would say that um, it's much, much less. What, why? Because people became more, you know. No, no, because this is a resistance of human's body. Oh, yes. It's like so. antibiotic. I, I think it's also an important thing that less, there are less causes to speak about. I mean, the, the actual, uh, actual weakness of causes. I mean, well, Donbass issue is, I mean, it's, we, everyone is tired of that. I mean, okay, there's something happening over there. I mean, not everything reported, not everything underlined and so on. And it like, it moved from news to opinion, which is, which is important. And this is why it also is much less influential because opinion could not be influential. News are. And then when they were, Delivering fake news, this, this was dangerous, especially because they, 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 they can create uh, a response uh, that is sometimes very un unlogical or, or, or very natural and the fear and so on. Opinion, no, opinion does not, opinion may start the war, but opinion doesn't start panic or something like that. That probably Russian propaganda, of course, it, it's, it's not something that started against Ukraine just during the Revolution of Dignity and afterwards. It's, it actually it existed uh, from 1991 since Ukraine got its independence. And I do remember TV reports in the times when Ukraine and Russia were so called, like French states, uh, especially uh, under the rule of the Yanukovych, and still. Uh, the correspondents who worked for uh, Kiev Bureau of the Russian channels. Uh, they made the stories about, uh, for example, uh, national dolls with a swastik like on their national costumes and so on. So like pointing to, to the things like we really, uh, so uh, we have lots of far politicians uh, and et cetera and et cetera. So, uh, the stories that they really use now about mentioned crucified boys, of course, we also do understand that they're not new and crucified boys. They've been during the Second World War, the First World War. And that's why, of course, we still some, have some people who are susceptible to, uh, susceptible to propaganda. But I fully agree with Natalka in the regards that nowadays it's not that bad as it was before. And uh, mostly, of course, the the issue is with the people uh, who live in the East and they still don't know where to gather, where to receive this information. They don't have any reliable source. Um, the other thing, so for going back to the Baltic countries, I, when I'm asking myself uh, where can, for example, Russian-speaking population in Baltic countries uh, get some news about Ukraine. This is also the issue because I guess that they uh, still watch uh, Russian television, of course, and information on Ukraine they gather from this news. And that's why they are probably uh, absolutely uh, disinformed about everything what's happening in Ukraine and this is dangerous because uh, at some point that could be used against them just like serving a very bad example did you see what happened in Ukraine do you want to have the same so yeah um, what's going on with uh, independent media in Ukraine now um, is it yes I do actually I mean it's a very they're working question. nice not bad 
And uh, how many uh, how many state-owned media in Ukraine uh, operate today? And uh, how many uh, how many people do actually still watch Russian uh, Russian propaganda TV or? I don't know if there's any newspapers now. I don't have numbers about from people matters, people, people meters, uh, about Russian TV. I can say that there is one government government run TV channel which, which is uh, Channel One, mm -hmm. UT One, mm -hmm. and they also have a few state agencies. Um, and by my understanding, they are going to to start a new TV channel which is going to broadcast in English too. Okay. Yep. Um, related to the to the situation uh, of, of independent media, the situation was pretty bad, and I, I can it's uh, it's pretty bad now because okay. the economy is going down, because people are frustrated, because uh, you know no money from advertising means uh, it's 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 really hard to uh, continue sponsorship. It's really hard to continue investments when the economy, the, the global economy of the country, is going down, especially for media. But isn't it a good thing, guys, that uh, almost every like big Ukrainian oligarch uh, owns uh, his own TV channel and they compete between themselves, which is good. Which is like, as far as I understand, uh, the American media started. They all just, you know, had their newspapers and they <laughs> did it. it is it helpful? It's better than to have like one state-owned or two state-owned sure. channels. Just one oligarch, Vladimir Putin owns everything, right? Yeah. So we have only one state-owned channel, and it doesn't have any significant influence on the audience. Because I also I, I could be I could be wrong, but I think that their figures like two three percent, and they're being watched in the rural areas only. And but coverage is really good. Coverage is very good, but again, we come back to the content. They don't uh, produce any good content. No one watch this television? I, mean, I, mean, I, can, I, can, I can answer on your question about how many Ukrainians still watch, sort of, or still consume Russian mm -hmm. produced news. It was a report published several weeks ago by Finnish Council for Foreign Relations, which uh, showed very good uh, data. Uh, they studied border countries uh, and media consumption there. About 11% of Ukrainians continue to watch Russian TV and uh, follow Russian news and so on. Much less, actually, than, than it was uh, uh, in 2000, I think, 13. Pre the previous research was 13, like about decline of three times. And uh, for Baltic states, it's about, it's, it's very different because very small percentage in Lithuania and very high percentage in Latvia and in the between in Estonia. Um, this is uh, a question for everybody. What do you think Western countries could do to support independent media in Ukraine today? Just maybe you have the same recipe. Right? Same response, yeah. yeah. Nice. You? Still oh. investing in journalism education. I'm, I'm emphasizing on, on this every time because I think that the lack of education, the frustration, um, bad economy, this is causes mm, you know this um, the situation when people can resist what, what content they are consuming, what they are watching. So, like, yeah. education, also providing probably sort of financial independence to the newsrooms, to the probably small uh, stations, small um, 
TV channels like Romatske, for example, because they could serve probably this basis for creating the independent television. At least I see only them um, who, who, is, who started this way and who are going this path. Um, yeah, probably this is the most important thing at the point. Okay, and then I would like to proceed to the most important part for me personally, um, uh, about what to do with Russia. Because, I mean, yeah, it, because sometimes people think that, well, we just should forget about it. See, nothing could be done there, which I disagree with, because sooner or later Vladimir Putin will, will be gone, and we will have just uh, 140 million people left once again with just without knowing what to do with all this and so I'm I mean should Western countries support Russian journalists or I mean some small institutions of civil society now or sh they should just forget about it you know again I started talking about this when I when I when I was talking about journalism education uh, I think that we need to stop talking about strategies and start talking about what's right and wrong. Right? It is right to support civil society institutions whenever there is a possi uh, the possibility of doing that. It is right. To, it is wrong to do business with uh, with Putin's regime. And this, by the way, um, has a direct relationship to what we're talking about because. Um, Western companies continue to advertise on all sorts of Russian channels. Western companies that uh, both inside Russia and, and I think to a lesser extent on RT, but um, you know, Western companies that, uh, uh, that, that Western governments and Western societies actually have ways to, to exert pressure on, continue to sponsor Russian television. Uh, and, and Russian propaganda. That, that, uh, and you know, I don't think Russian propaganda is going to go off the air if Western companies start, um, stop pouring advertising dollars into it. But it's wrong to pour advertising dollars into Russian propaganda. But it is right to support civil society. Um, I also think that we have to think about, uh, I mean, yes, there's going to be an after. And uh, I think that it's foolhardy to imagine that we have recipes for what to do in the after. Uh, but it is a good time to take stock of what happened in the 1990s and all the things that weren't understood and weren't done in the 1990s. Uh, uh, and what wasn't understood was the uh, extreme impact that 70 years of totalitarianism had had on the fabric of society, the trauma uh, of totalitarianism. And I'm not talking about the trauma of humiliation by the West and all that uh, uh, pablum that, that we're often fed. I'm talking about the actual trauma uh, that Russia has suffered that is unlike the trauma suffered, suffered by any other society in history. We should be studying that. We should be trying to understand that. Um, and that's something that's not happening in this country. There's, uh, there's, there are very little resources in Russian studies. There's very little going on uh, in this city and in, uh, and in universities uh, in terms of an attempt to understand what happened and what is happening and why that society is behaving the way it is. Is there going to be a new trauma caused by Putin's regime? 
Oh, I think the trauma uh, being caused by Putin's regime is profound. I think that there's sort of the, the, the primary trauma of totalitarianism, and then there's this new trauma of recurrent totalitarianism, which is what we're witnessing now, right? Uh, which, which, which I think is, uh, you know, if that trauma was unlike anything that we'd ever seen, uh, that, that the world had ever seen before, then this sort of goes beyond uh, everything. I mean, it is, it, is, uh, it is the ultimate destruction of, uh, of, of, of the human public. Um, yeah, I, I would support Masha in most of her uh, topics. I think that uh, first and foremost, uh, we even even us who spend a lot of time in Russia and been been part of this process and this process of rise and and and, and fall of Russian media uh, uh, during. 80s, 90s, and um, uh, in the 21st century, uh, the internal mechanism, the the psychological mechanism that that, that underlie there, uh, are not very well researched, and uh, and we, we we don't we don't understand so far. I mean, we have only hypotheses on whether it was planned, or it's an absolutely tactical um, game when 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 step after step. Uh, Putin had exercised uh, control over society. I mean, where where society didn't didn't resist, he 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 stepped further. Where 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 media didn't resist, he stepped further. Uh, when he f sort of faced some resistance, he probably stepped back and waited and uh, uh, and 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 pretended to sort of to change his opinion. Um, I I think I think this is this is first. It's important to understand what had happened. And it's important to understand, um, to monitor, uh, actually just monitor what is happening. Uh, I remember in, in the good old days of the Cold War I, uh, US, US government had a very powerful uh, monitoring tool that, 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 that uh, followed Russian active measures, Soviet active measures, uh, on a daily basis in producing reports that if you read them today, I mean they're they're, they're declassified. They're available uh, at at the archives, and you just you just read. It's the whole same playbook. So the people the people in Moscow just just take their old discoveries and uh, and, and and repeat them. So I I think still it's 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 it should be monitored. It should be it should be not under underestimated in terms of uh, of. Uh, uh, of the danger and and harm it produces to Russian social tissue, uh, which is definitely not in a good shape now, and we see how how it's happening like in real time. I mean, I mean the society the society reacts uh, neurotically on very strange issues, and uh, and 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 uh, it it doesn't really have uh, right instruments for dialogue. And it doesn't really kind of operate properly when it gets external messages. So, yeah. So monitor, monitor study, and educate. Yeah. But if we are talking about support of Russian journalists, uh, how can this be done um, if Russia, Russian authorities just they ban everything just step by step? I mean, as far as I can see, the only now, for now, it can be banned just tomorrow. Uh, uh, opportunities, just apps, you know, apps. There, you can spread them without any restrictions. They can be banned. They, you, 
Like, I mean, that's my vision. Everything else can be just blocked. You know, if you start a website, it can be blocked. If you start a project, they will say, well, you're a foreign agent, blocked. And they, what, what, how can this be done? I mean, this is very important. Well, uh, I don't know that this is the best forum in which to discuss the specifics of how it can be done. It can be done. Okay. 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 You know, um, in uh, 1912, uh, Vladimir Lenin has founded uh, Pravda. And uh, in 1917, something happened in October, if you remember. Okay. And Pravda had no official circulation in the Russian Empire. Okay. Uh, if we're talking about um, such media outlets as Medusa, for example, just for, just for you to understand, there was um, a huge uh, Russian in internet media called Lenta.ru. It was extremely popular and very well done. And just all of a sudden, uh, Russian authorities forced... Uh, oh, th there was a new owner, Alexander Mahmoud. Uh, he just fired uh, the chief editor, Galena Timchenko, and everybody was fired. Uh, somebody just quit themselves. themselves. And these guys, they uh, founded a new media project called Medusa. Is now they, based, they are based in Latvia and Riga. And this is... For me, this is a very good start. Um, should like projects like this be supported? Uh, I, and my specific question: Do you think they are more um, more influential and actually more important than such media outlets as Voice of America or Radio Liberty? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What do you think of uh, Voice of America and Radio Liberty activities? Are they effective at all? Is somebody just watching them, listening to them? RTL is really good. What? RTL. Radio Liberty is really, uh -huh. really good. I mean, comparing to the other sources run by government, I can say that, for example, the office in Prague is providing a really good content. The office in Kiev. Um, is providing really good content and they are very fast. I mean, the news is just pop up and they are finding the sources and they interviewing people and this, all of this um, almost immediately uh, is accessible online. So yeah, I, I, I can say the, a really good work, uh, good, 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 good words about uh, uh, the, wor uh, the work of uh, Radio Liberty. Uh, Radio Liberty is not a government-run organization. No, no, it's a non-profit organization that is funded entirely by an act of Congress, but it's a private non-profit corporation, uh, and that's important, and it makes it completely different from Voice of America. Uh, but uh, also, just there's a huge dis difference and distinction between the Ukrainian service and the Russian service, unfortunately. So, and what's the, and what's the difference? Because, uh, I mean, I don't know any single person who would, I do, because that's my job, I'm a journalist, but I don't know any other single person who would watch or listen to Radio Liberty or Voice of America. For example, Radio Liberty in Ukraine has a very nice project. It's an um, investigative program. Its name uh, Scams. So it's not like uh, just the Radio Liberty itself, but this is uh, their, the program that they back financially. And this program, it's being carried on this first TV channel, uh, which is actually not watched very much, as I previously mentioned. But this program on this TV station, it's very good. 
And this is probably one of the key programs uh, that can feel uh, journalists there, they can feel them themselves absolutely independent because they don't have any financing from, from the state, from TV channel owners, from, from any, anyone. So they, they are quite sure that no one will quit them tomorrow after a very tough investigation. And they are doing good things. And even recently, they unveiled a TV report about the meetings of them member of parliament with one, with one of the judges in one very fancy uh, Kiev restaurant and they filmed it using a cell phone and it was a huge scandal. If they could do it, they proved because they are educated journalists and they proved that they could do it as he was a public person in a public place. Uh, so yes, and this is how actually Radio Liberty works for, for Ukrainian TV actually, not as radio, but doing a very good job. Good to know. And the very last question for me. Um, there are so many speculations on Russian uh, influence on U European politics. I know it's, it has le like not, not much to do with uh, the states directly, but uh, people just keep saying that Russia support, uh, supports far-right uh, extremists in Europe and Europe is you know, just going to fall apart on something like that. Do you think it's relevant? So, or do you think that Russia is a real decider there or just an opportunist? I don't think Russia is a decider anywhere. It's an opportunist everywhere. Uh, and the opportunities for disruption and destabilization in various European countries are huge and Russia is using them whenever <laughs> possible and it's often possible. Yeah. I agree with Masha, but uh, I think that uh, uh, there is opportunism from both sides. I mean, European far-right politicians are leveraging Russian support or Russian capacity to be sort of backed by Russian voice or Russian opinion uh, as well. And, um, and, and uh, the, the strange thing is that, uh, that in some countries it, uh, it really kind of affects the national agenda. Uh, which, which I don't think it should be. But, so. Do you think this is what happened in the Netherlands? I'm sorry. Do you think uh, with the referendum? Oh, no. Oh, because, you know, there are people who say that yes, actually. Look, I don't think any of us is an expert on this. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I can't answer. I don't know. I mean, I've, I haven't been there. I haven't studied this and so on. But, but, but the fact, I mean, if Anton Shekhavtsov is here, he would probably tell you much more about that, but mm -hmm. it's not, not us, definitely. OK. Also, right uh, before this referendum, and I made plenty of reports, and I was going to mention that that initially my thought was also that it was probably somehow inflamed or inspired by Russia. But anyway, of course, it was just about uh, Eurosceptic far-right politicians in the Netherlands, and just a good chance and opportunity for Russia to use it for for its own purposes. No more. And I have the very, very last question about uh, Russian, but it's not about media, but since uh, it's about Russian propaganda, how influ influential Russian propaganda is uh, um, being operated through think tanks in DC? Because, no, do you, do you, do you know anything I, about You that? should ask us about things we know. Oh yeah, I mean, maybe you <laughs> do know something about that. Do you know something about that? Okay. I mean, no, it's a big question because there is not just Atlantic Council 
which exists. There are so many other think tanks, and probably you just visit them to uh, to cover uh, stuff that's going on there. No, like roundtables, conferences. Well, and I think uh, I, I think I think the problem is that. Uh, uh, it's not uh, it's not a situation similar to uh, sort of warlike conditions between Soviet Union Russia uh, like it was between Soviet Union and the United States I mean Russia uh, uh, acts on American political field more or less, I mean at least in the United States uh, more or less uh, openly I mean uh, they have uh, they have their own establishments here uh, uh, or, well, some of them closed, but some of them continue to operate. Uh, there are companies working for them uh, uh, in PR sector and GR sector and so on. Why, why should, uh, and why should Russia be kind of discarded as a, no. as a, as a participant uh, as, as it has a lot of things to do with the United States? So I think the, the, problem, the problem is I mean, that you don't have to be like Joseph McCarthy finding Russian agents in every uh, in every possible establishment in DC, I mean, and, and it's not our work, actually. Okay, I'm not finding them, just for the record. So, okay, uh, I would like to, yeah, yes, questions, please. Comments in the question. Okay, m m make sure it will be sure. Yes, Nadia McConnell, U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. Comment in the question. Um, your colleagues in the media have been uh, wittingly or unwittingly participating in Russian propaganda for decades. Let me just cite a few examples. The New York Times, Walter Durante got a Pulitzer Prize for uh, denying there was a hole of the mod. If you look in Wikipedia about the uh, erecting of the Thomas Tarashevchenko uh, monument, the opposition to that was led by the Washington Post. During the millennium, we had similar actions. So this propaganda machine has been active for a very, very long time. And unfortunately, has your, some of your colleagues have participated directly in it. My question to you is, is it appropriate for you, or are there ways for you to meet with your colleagues who are not seeing facts as they are? As an example, uh, Russian-backed separatists. That's the term of art. What about the Russian soldiers who are there? Thank you. Now, who is this question for? Anybody who wants to answer. Okay, thank you. Well, um, just I would just like to note that Wikipedia is not a good source of information on this, but uh, <laughs> but it is true that uh, I think that mainstream American media, especially in some ways, the New York Times, have been very much behind the curve on uh, uncovering Russia, well, actually, um, consistently throughout the 20th century. Uh, and uh, an example, I mean, Durante's um, Pulitzer Prize is one example. Another example is Harrison Salisbury's failed battle to get um, uh, the, his editors to append a notation to his, uh, to, to his dispatches that would say that they had been censored by the Soviets. The paper wouldn't admit that. Uh, so I think the New York Times has an institutional and structural problem that it has largely compensated 
by including a wide variety of, of op-ed op voices. I'm, I, I have a monthly column, uh, Ivan Krustov, uh, who is a wonderful analyst of, of um, Sort of the, the 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 state of being in Eastern Europe is, has a monthly column. Maxim Trudalyubov from Russia has a monthly column. It's huge. It's a very large critical presence. Uh, I don't know what can be done uh, with the culture of the newsroom uh, to change its ways because I, I really think it's structural. I think it's uh, sort of the, uh, uh, there's a, there's a false understanding of. Uh, of, of objectivity uh, that that leads to these problems. I don't know what can be done about that. It's definitely not my place because I write for the op-ed pages. So. Oh, please, gentlemen. Uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman in my the Atlanta Council, and my question stems from a reality that uh, not too long ago in Washington you were allowed to have your own opinion but not your own facts, and that is no longer the case today. You're entitled to both. Uh, I've listened to this conversation now for an hour and a half, and quite frankly, I don't know what points you're making. Um, so what I'd really like to ask you is to focus on why are we here and what are you telling us? Um, if I had a panel of journalists from the United States who are critical and change some names, say RT to Fox, or at MSNBC, or Putin to Donald Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders. I would get very, very similar remarks about propaganda distortion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly, Mr. Putin has a popularity of about 90%. And if you listen to his Valdai speeches and you listen to his annual press conferences, in many ways he's more informative than the President of the United States or other leaders. So my question to you, no, are we looking at a situation in which facts and opinion no longer matter or they are so uh, intertwined that this is really the bane of journalism? And what do you want us, the listeners, to take away as your one big headline or one big idea from this seminar? Well, I can answer that. So first. RT is no big deal. There is no point in countering it. And uh, second, uh, there is no point probably in increasing uh, finance, fi financing uh, Voice of America and whatever it is, because it just has no impact. Uh, and third, the third point was education, educational programs, and support of Russian journalists and Ukrainian independent, Ukrainian independent journalists, because they apparently know more than American experts do. And no, Vladimir Putin is, no, is not more, uh, uh, he doesn't know uh, more than Barack Obama does. Believe me, Vladimir Putin is very, very ignorant, very. Probably, I, I hope you do speak Russian or maybe understand Russian. If you just listen to his public speeches, public, where he can answer just simplest question, he, you wouldn't say that. Yeah, so the next question, uh, the gentleman here, yeah. Thank you. My name is Andre Goodfriend, and uh, I'm with the State Department. Nice. The, uh, but it's my own personal opinion. The, uh, I mean, what you, drawing, drawing on what's been said here, I think, Masha Gessen, you'd said that the, um, uh, that the goal of Russian propaganda was not really directly to misinform, but to create this this uh, context of chaos, context of confusion. At the same time, you're, uh, I'm hearing that RT has no impact, 
Voice of America, no impact, that uh, people are not uh, listening directly to these authoritative or purportedly authoritative voices. But perhaps you know, that's not the point. Perhaps the point is not who you're communicating, who you appear to be communicating to directly, but more who are you communicating to in the periphery, the collateral damage. Uh, one of the points made here was with regard to what the impact is within Europe and with right-wing uh, nationalist movements. So my question is, is, is perhaps the greater impact of the new propaganda, not the direct message, but the, the bites that can be picked up by other media, the, the fact that it might have originated from RT, but, or it might have originated from some other uh, Russian source, but it's picked up because it's packaged right by local media within Europe, creating that sense that you can't, that uh, people you trust, the local media, are saying that you can't trust anybody. Uh, and so that, so perhaps is the greater impact this peripheral, this not indirect impact, the fact that it's picked up uh, by other media? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I don't know that uh, that the, the, the people running RT and other propaganda outlets are consciously thinking of getting uh, the, the, their stories out there and, the, and, and having them picked up. Uh, they're really sort of, they function on a day-to-day -day basis much more like parasites. They actually scour the local media uh, and p pluck out skeptics and then draw out these alternative narratives uh, in their own broadcasts. But I think that the basic, uh, uh, the basic goal, the basic idea is to, yes, is to sow confusion, to, uh, to show that no one can be trusted, that no one has the moral high ground, that, no, uh, that nothing can be believed, that everything is rigged. Right? That's the basic message of, of, of Russian propaganda, both in the country and outside the country. Uh, and it can stick, and it can stick better where there's sort of natively more confusion um, and, and, where, uh, and less cohesion. Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned that in, in, in my sort of one of my answers, that this is an echo chamber thing. I mean, they need, they, 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 one of the main kind of goals they have, uh, key performance indicators, is how m many times have they cited, how many times are they reported in, in Western media, even if they've been, uh, even if the Western media said, I mean, RT lied or RT did this wrong or this wrong, it's okay for them because every, every news except uh, arbitrary is good for them, that's it. Um, Yaroslav, please. Hello, my name is Yaroslav Dogopola. I'm Ukrainian journalist here in, in the United States. And uh, here in Washington, I periodically ask uh, officials, American journalists, uh, experts about Russian journalism now. I ask them two questions, and I'd like to ask these two questions to you. The first one is uh, how can we call uh, professionals in Russia who create aggressive propaganda? Are they still journalists or fighters or instrument of war or something else? Because officials 
usually avoid uh, to answer this question. And the second one uh, is uh, about real journalists who uh, use uh, truth in their work in Russia. How many such people do you know, and what is the percentage of uh, real Russian journalists in Russia? Thank you. Who would like to answer that? Uh, I'll probably start with propaganda, right? Um, maybe my colleagues will disagree with me, but by, by my humble understanding, uh, journalists can't conduct propaganda at all. I mean, we can't call people who are conducting a propagandic stories journalists. I can't remember the author who said that journalists is uh, very similar to the bell who is calling people to go to the church, but the bell itself is not listening to the service. Uh, the the question about how many people uh, in the profession in our field uh, I know from Russia who are really good and how, like, I, I can actually answer for this moment. I probably may add that of course um, the one who is producing propaganda can't be called journalist anymore. However, they are professional propagandists and they use their professional journalistic skills to deliver propaganda and that's why they are actually uh, dangerous. I've recently had a chance to uh, watch a like, propaganda movie made by uh, TV channel Russia, Russia, and it was dedicated to the anniversary of their news service. It was like 25 years of uh, Vesti or something like that. And of course, it was my big professional interest, so how could they, would they present themselves? And that was like very good piece to, um, that can serve as an example, uh, that they still have a lot of journalists who are working, uh, good journalists who are working as propagandists. And they are, I think, personally convinced that they are doing good things, but this is something that can't be like taken from the table, that they cover lots of uh, military conflicts. So they have uh, been first in some places, along with like having only CNN and uh, TV channel Vestia. And so this is the main evidence how, how dangerous their propaganda is actually is, actually is because uh, they do have those skills to, to deliver and to make good reports, but they are just not the journalistic reports, but propaganda reports. And I, I don't consider them to be my colleagues. They probably don't consider me to be their colleague. Uh, we exist in two separate worlds. Uh, I can't give you any statistics on percentages or number of independent journalists. Uh, what I can say is that there are one or two outlets. They have tiny, tiny, tiny audiences. They're, uh, they're struggling to survive. There are particular issues that have to do with what's sort of the, that, that struggle, right? For example, uh, Vasily mentioned Erbaka, and that's a really interesting case in point, right? Uh, it was uh, it completely disreputable media holding that had this sort of miraculous resurrection uh, uh, over the course of a couple of years after a, a new team came in with really good management and managed to really turn this, this thing around and uh, produce a number of very, very good investigative reports whereupon uh, they were all fired. So uh, 
But if you look at the audience of those investigative reports, even though the audience of the entire media holding is huge, it's, it's, an, uh, it's something like 11 or 12 million um, visitors a month, the actual readership of those investigative reports is only about uh, at maximum 600,000 people, which with the internet penetration in Russia and, uh, and, and the population of Russia, Russia is just absurdly tiny. Right, so uh, it's it's also the echo chamber f effect, but on the other side, and um, and and sort of being chased around from one media outlet to another, and having to recreate their audiences from scratch every time means that they reach out to fewer and fewer people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I would say that uh, it's very difficult to judge by numbers, but there are definitely people in Moscow who continue to do good journalism on different, on different platforms. Uh, some of them even do journalism for television. Uh, like, uh, well, it may be more about culture or about, about, about uh, history or about, uh, about like, like Sasha Arkhangelsky or, or I mean, and then they, 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 they really, they really f sort of fight for, for, for this. Uh, messaging of something good to Russian audience. Uh, so it's not like an army of uh, uh, bad guys against uh, a small, tiny uh, battalion of good guys. Uh, but, uh, but the problem is that um, people who actually do their regular job at Vesti, for example, they come to a newsroom, do you think they really kind of understand what they're doing. No, they're just doing their job. Uh, and, 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 and they're naturally supporting many of these things because you can't, you can't disagree with them living in the toxic atmosphere. So, so, so they, they kind of self-inflict the damage that, that, that comes to the soul and professional qualities of these people. This is, this is, this is mm, ugly to explain and ugly to feel, but, but, but each of us have some people who, 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 who've been there and then just jumped out and said, what, 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 what I've done? I mean, I mean I've, I, I have, I've spent three years in, in hell or, or, or whatever. So this is, this is difficult, but uh, I think the society will exactly like it happened in 1991 and in the, in the end of Soviet Union will, will recover for that one day. But you never, never know when it happens. Alina has, has a question. Alina Poyakova, Atlantic Council. I wanted to go back to this question. I don't mean to answer a question that was for the panelists about what should journalists who are actually propagandists be called, but one term that I've heard is news workers versus journalists. And I think that is a good term to understand who these people are and they're not reporting, they're not objective, they're not neutral. Um, but my question goes back to something that you said earlier, Masha, about um, that it's not about countering and strategies, but rather about what's right and wrong. And I want to go back to what you said, because to me that sounds like what the, I guess, consequence of that statement is that we as Westerners, policymakers in Europe and the US, or as think tankers, uh, journalists, whatever, um, should invest in communicating why Western values like democracy, plurality in the civil society sphere, um, liberalism, et cetera, are, are things that, you know, the public, the average individual should still want in their societies. Because this is what I think is profoundly under threat um, in Europe today, 
through the rise of more nationalist, economic populist parties, and also in our country as well, with the rise of figures like Donald Trump. Um, but then my question to you, you know, who's, whose job is it to do so? Whose job is it to tell the public what's right and what's wrong, and what's good and what's bad? Is it the job of journalists or somebody else? Um. That's an interesting question. I mean, uh, I think it is the job of anybody who can do it and who will take it on. Uh, uh, I mean, I've, uh, I've personally sort of crossed the line many times from activist to journalist, from journalist to uh, author of books, uh, and, uh, and from author of books to researcher. So um, I, I, I've had the luxury of never having worked for a newspaper. Uh, which is what places you know, those incredible professional restrictions uh, on, on being able to do that. There are many people out there, and I think that um, in this day and age, there are a lot more people who sort of move in, uh, through different public spheres uh, and work in different ways uh, uh, that are that are sometimes defined as journalism. So I don't know, you know, that that it, that it makes a lot of sense to to get hung up on that. In terms of sort of devising public education programs, it is probably a good idea to think of journalists in a broader way than a lot of uh, than, than a lot of people think of journalists. As, you know, people who work uh, in the newsroom to uh, to produce news for newspapers. Gentleman in the back, standing. Yeah, yes, that gentleman wearing a suit. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Rahim Rashidi with Kurdistan TV. Could you please give us some personal views on how dangerous it is to cover either Mr. Putin or his colleagues in the key companies? Thank you. question always uh, always comes uh, I, I think that I think the answer to that question is look we're all sitting here uh, where we're safe and it's a little disingenuous to start talking about how dangerous it is uh, to to be covering Putin when there are actually people putting their lives in danger on a daily basis on the ground it is dangerous uh, Russia, you, you, um, all you have to do is log on to uh, or go on to the, uh, the website for the Committee to Protect Journalists to see that Russia consistently, year after year, not only has, uh, is one of the most dangerous places for, uh, for journalists to work, but also ranks among the highest countries on the impunity index. So not only do journalists get killed and attacked, but th those crimes are never solved. But go one step further. And go uh, and look on the list of people who are um, who've been attacked or who've been killed, and you'll see that you don't recognize any of those names. Uh, and that's what really makes makes things dangerous for them. It's not those of us who speak at the Atlantic Council and have bylines in the New York Times who are in real danger. It's the people who who don't have the eyes of the world on them, who are in true danger. Well, as far as I know, uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't like when he's been attacked personally. Just he doesn't care about corruption stuff. I know, just he doesn't care. But uh, one should not call him, like, I don't know, ignorant maybe or something like that. So, yes. 
or maybe worse, you know, there, there was a popular uh, word for, for him in Maidan. Actually, we won't say it, but everybody knows it. So this is bad. You should not do that. Um, a lady, please. What about No longer affiliated with anything. Uh, <laughs> a blessed state. A blessed state. Um, a, a short comment to Masha Gessen that the points you raised can also be raised in academia. And this is one of the central problems that we're facing and probably one of the areas in which soft uh, influence of Russia is felt. The other question I have is to the Ukrainian journalists. There's been a fair amount of criticism in the so-called diaspora community of why some of the Ukrainian outlets, media outlets, use the Russian language. So my question is, you mentioned Hromatsky uh, Radio. Do you think that Hromatsky, the whole principle of, of um, public radio, um, will the principle of public radio be effective in Ukraine, or is it already effective in Ukraine? And what do you think Hromatsky Radio and Hromatska Televizia, what are the, uh, will, they, will they survive? Thank you. Uh, okay, I will start for the, um, uh, you know, I've been visiting the Conference of North American Journalists this weekend and we had a long discussion about the language uh, which is being used in Russia, in Ukrainian media. And even one of the accusations was about uh, Ukrainian Pravda and the editor-in-chief who is using Russian language. But actually, the, the, and my TV channel will also have uh, um, news segments both in Ukrainian and in Russian. So usually how it goes, we have Ukrainian uh, morning news and um, news at noon, and then we have main segment in Ukrainian, and then we have main segment in Russian. But anyway, uh, why it's actually still happening so. Uh, people who live in the east of Ukraine, uh, they speak Russian. And the only way to knock at their door is to speak Russian. And I think that we still, uh, we do uh, need to preserve this Russian uh, broadcast for certain groups of the people who, who would probably like to start speak Ukrainian, but they would probably need more time. We don't have this problem anymore in the new generation. And all the probably teens um, aged 15, 16 years old, um, they, more of them, they, they speak Ukrainian rather than Russian, uh, even though they know, of course, both languages. And I wish we were even trilingual nation speaking closer Polish, but as far as we have this situation in the East, I do understand why in uh, Ukrainian diaspora here, uh, it's still, uh, for, for you, it's, it's still an issue. Anyway, it's a good thing that we put it out of the table nowadays, and we have lots of more challenging problems, what to discuss. So. <laughs> oh, thank okay, you. Okay, next question. There's a gentleman in a pink t uh, shirt. Yes, yeah. Hey, uh, Yuri Borowski, uh, uh, public diplomacy graduate of Syracuse University, currently of the World Bank, so I'm here on my own time. Here's a question. Uh, the event is called Changing Case of Russian Propaganda, and we've been discussing TV so far. 
Uh, what about Twitter? What about uh, social media? What about uh, even what about Wikipedia? Uh, a lot of people form their opinions, and, and then when we talk about changing someone else's opinion, uh, if you look at public diplomacy theory, changing someone else's opinion is very difficult. What is easy to do is influence opinion of a person who isn't undecided yet. I mean, we're in a city in Washington D.C. full of lobbyists, definitely a lot of experts in changing people's opinions here. But when we look at social media. A lot of people there are not very well informed on any issue one way or the other. And Russia is doing a very good job influencing those people there. So uh, it'd be very interesting to hear actually Gessen's perhaps perspective, um, someone who's not in actually TV business right now. What can be done to actually uh, address the propaganda on other sources other than TV? And it's also very labor intensive, to be honest. Uh, what Russia is doing uh, with RT is very expensive, and we've quoted numbers. What we don't know are the numbers, how much Russia is spending on social media work, because uh, the number of people required to uh, man that operation is a lot greater than the number of people required for a TV channel. So just kind of got a, got a lot of questions there. Thanks. I think pretty much everything I've said uh, applies to social media the same way that it applies to, uh, to more traditional media. I don't think it's a battle of facts. It's a battle of worldviews. Uh, and um, that's, you know, I don't have a solution for, for what to do, but I, you know, certainly the solution is not to get into, into, into Twitter, Twitter wars uh, with, 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 with the bots uh, spreading misinformation. Uh, well, I probably can, can, can answer. Uh, def definitely Russian. Well, let's put it this way, not Russian government. We don't know who funds this experiment. Uh, but some, some, some Russian uh, oligarchs and uh, people close to Putin uh, finance uh, so-called army of trolls. That's true. Mm -hmm. uh, the scale of this is uh, several million dollars a year. It's a lot of money, but it's, uh, it's, it's still in, in minor scale in comparison to things like Sputnik or uh, RT. Uh, whether or not it does affect uh, sort of public opinion uh, in other countries than Russia, I mean, I would rather say no, uh, at least for now. Uh, it, it does really mm, affect domestic public opinion, and uh, uh, we have a new genre in Russian media, I mean, report about what one said in Facebook and the other answered to him in Facebook or on Twitter, uh, which I think is very inappropriate from a journalistic point of view. But, uh, but still, I mean, it, 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 uh, it became, Facebook, like LiveJournal before, became some kind of a platform where political views are discussed and so on. It's not a platform for delivering facts. I mean, I, I agree with much. It's not a platform for delivering facts, and uh, will never be. And the gentleman, yes. Thank you. Um, Serge Kabanadze, uh, former deputy foreign minister of Georgia and the creator of the fact-checking website in Georgia. Um, um, for the last few years, uh, we've been countering Russian propaganda in Georgia rather extensively. We have the um, coalition of the non-governmental organizations and the media sources who are doing it in, particularly in the regions of Georgia. One observation I can uh, share with you is that no matter how many lectures you conduct, no matter how many seminars, no matter how much effort you put in this 
it's like a Sisyphus work because they are promoting their propaganda with the media, with the TV, with the Russian language TV. If you do not have the similar Russian language TV station, particularly in those regions where the only source of information is the Russian language TV, you're basically wasting your time. So one of the feelings we have is that even though we've conducted maybe hundreds of meetings in different parts of Georgia to precisely counter Russian propaganda, without having the Russian language alternative media, it simply does not work. Also, I want to comment on what Ms. Gessen said about the facts. In fact, uh, I think they are also distorting facts quite often. So one of the ways that we are uh, uh, countering it is to expose when they distort the facts. And actually, it works. But once again, the problem is the lack of alternative media. Now, the question is, in many uh, um, cases, in Georgia, for instance, it's also the issue of the national security. Because if you have a certain number of population who is exposed to Russian propaganda, then those regions could become vulnerable or volatile for the intervention. You know, uh, look at Crimea, look at Eastern Ukraine, um, something that could uh, theoretically happen in the Baltic states. So the question is, isn't it justifiable because of the security concerns in such extreme cases to actually ban Russian TV and to spend some state money on creating the alternative Russian language media? For instance, in Georgia, we had that experience uh, a few years back when the first Caucasus TV was created by the former government. It worked quite effectively for a few years. It was linked to the Georgian state broadcaster, and uh, its budget was linked to the GDP of the country. Then it was suspended by the new government. But anyways, we have that kind of experience. What, what would you think about uh, such an approach? Thank you. Well, I think this is actually where Vasily and I disagree slightly. Um, I don't see a problem with banning Russian TV. Uh, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't see a moral problem with it. I don't see a logistical problem with it. Uh, why should uh, something that is, uh, uh, that is on the face of it wrong, factually wrong, be in the public sphere uh, when it's demonstrably misinformation? And, and, and again, for the third time, I want to say I didn't, I'm not saying that they're not distorting facts. They are absolutely distorting facts, but that's not the point of what they're doing. The point of, their, of what they're doing is not to get somebody to believe so, uh, something that's not true. The point of what they're doing is to get people to not believe anything ever. That's sort of the, the basic worldview that they're promoting. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that uh, banning Russian TV is probably a perfectly valid solution where that's plausible. Uh, uh, well, I will, uh, I will add to that about sort of spending money or st state money on, on any, any kind of uh, special channel that exists in order to replace or, uh, or, or, or compete with the Russian TV delivering across the border. Uh, major Russian TV channels are huge news and entertainment organizations. They spend billion of dollars each. I mean, budget of Vogaterka is about $2 billion, and uh, P Channel 1 is about 20% smaller now. Uh, an astonishing amount of money on content. You cannot compete with a machine that spends so much money on the content without same amount of money, or at least like half of this, or probably third of this. And, uh, uh, but, 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 but you can't try to bite this, this audience. You can try to disturb, like you said, I mean, in some cases, it's enough to uncover the mechanism of propaganda. Sometimes sometime you expose false facts propaganda uses. Sometimes 
you, you, you expose uh, like lies and, uh, and, and the gender setting that they're doing. And it works. But to make it constant, you need an, investment, an investment of the scale that no country in the world, including the United States, cannot afford so far. I mean, sort of to, and you have to broadcast to the territory where you cannot broadcast because, because it's closed, it's other nation airspace, I mean, wave space. I mean, and, and that's, that's very difficult. And so I, I don't know, I mean, maybe for Georgia uh, or for, uh, for, for Baltic states, there is an alternative. But for like for Ukraine, no. I mean, they, they, would, they would still be exposed to that, both because of language and because of, uh, of territory. And we, we had best practice to them to be channels. I can say that this is a bad practice or um, it's not working, it's working. And banning even uh, Russian, it's just like a specific list of Russian um, propagandistic movies and uh, serials. It's, um, it's also the, the good thing to, to use, especially during you know, this um, non-declared war. So yeah. Okay, we have time for, oh. no, just the two last questions. Uh, gentlemen and the gentleman, yeah. Hi, um, I'm I'm always smiling yeah. from one of the hosts, but uh, I'll I'll speak as some a viewer of regular viewer of Russian language TV. Um, um, I'm sure Vasily is more experienced on this and or more knowledgeable than I am. But I think Russian ethnic Russian community in the U.S. Um, they might live in Brighton Beach, they might live here and work for Western companies. But in my experience, majority of them support um, Putin's policy, foreign policy, and Crimea. Uh, policy of Russia, uh, official Russia, uh, and it's not—it's regardless whether they watch um, RT or, like me, they're subscribed to Cartoon TV or not. So I, I don't know if anything can be done here, but just that's my experience. But going back to what can be done and a creation of um, a new TV or radio, uh, I don't know how is it feasible, is it possible with, with resources it requires, but um, uh, thank. Um, to colleagues from Ukraine who mentioned that there's a positive experience of um, existing media outlets like Radio Liberty or uh, Voice of America, and I'm glad to hear that Ukrainian uh, language service is great. But I don't think Russian language is, or and some of the languages are, are as good. Um, and even Nastasia Vrema that was created, I think, is not a success story. So, uh, but there are positive experiences out there. Um, I think Deutsche Welle's Russian, um, Russian language service is great, and I think it's getting um, right audience, and, and, and it's interesting. It has exactly the entertainment and other parts, but it is attractive. And I think with involving some um, Cold War experts would help this, to revive those channels, because as you said, it is exactly the same stories. And I think our generation or my generation is not capable of really running this um, government-supported um, or public-supported um, channels, existing channels, properly. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So there was no question. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't got the question there. I, I can say I, 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 uh, I work together with Jeffrey Cohen, uh, who was head of Voice of America twice uh, during at the peak of the Cold War and in the end of the Cold War. And we recently exchanged with him on this, and he said, even I don't know what to do. It's not my question, and it's not a question of expertise. It's a question of, 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 of getting all the experts together 
to understand what can be done. But it's not about, about, about someone's experience or someone's. I mean, you should put together a person who knows social media, person who knows modern uh, communication technology, person who, who understands Russia, who works in Russia, who worked in Russia, and so on, and, and, and who can also, uh, for, for example, de determine the limits. I mean, my friend. Uh, David Anser, who sits here, I mean, he, he knows that the, the problem, the problems that, that uh, as former director of Voice of America and PPG, I mean, there's a lot of restrictions that American organization has in regard to, to, to delivering certain messages or working uh, in other countries. So um, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a very difficult issue and a very difficult problem, especially when you want to, when you cannot uh, procure a, a viable economic model for, for alternative media, when you have to fund them through government, through sort of sources that, that, that sooner or later would, would, would be ended, I mean, would end, just because, because no, no, no state has uh, infinite, infinite budget. of running an English-speaking TV channel in terms of our media holding. So in our media holding, we have six different TV channels, and we are broadcasting in Ukrainian. But uh, two years ago, we decided to start the broadcasting in, in English, and we started the TV channel Ukraine Today, which is you know sounds pretty much similar to, to Russia Today. But in country, it was, a, uh, of course, pro-Ukrainian pro content. And uh, we hired a, a really good guys from Britain to be our voices. And um, a lot of them, they were you know, brave enough to go even to frontline to, to report from there. But we can't compete with, it. Uh, for example, the, you know, this big bureaucratic machine uh, which uh, the government has. Because they started a big TV channel. Um, probably my colleague Yaroslav will prompt me the new name of, of it. Um, it's something like. You are you are something. I, I just I, I can't be sure about the name. But at the, at this moment, we 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 try to you know to compete uh, with the um, Russian propaganda machine. In a, like in a, like it was at least attempt. And now, um, as far as this is first of all economical issue, they are broadcasting um, just in the web, so there is no broadcast uh, in, in, on a regular basis. So economy is, um, is uh, I suspect, the main issue for this. Thank you very much, everybody who attended this panel, and thank you, our experts. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.